Chris has dropped the microphone. There's a lot of people and a lot of religions that pray to their gods. But only those that call on the name of Jesus can answer. The others can fast and pray and go through whatever ritual and ceremony they so choose. But there'll never be an answer from heaven. But when you and I call the name of Jesus, we know that our God hears. And if our God hears, our God answers. So, Uncle Jerry, I've been praying and I've not heard a word. Well, so did Daniel. But he eventually got the answer. The angel took a note to, to tell him. These are just my words, but by the way, I sat out on my, my journey first day in prayer. I encountered difficulty. I had to, to call in for some backup. I had to go through some things to get the answer to you. But then I just want you to know God heard you the first time he called. Come to tell somebody tonight. God heard you the first time you called. So don't give up. Just hold on. The answer is already on the way. Amen. Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to go with me tonight to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in lesson three. We have kind of been recess for a couple of that doesn't have the verse. Doesn't have the verses in the books. Yes. First Corinthians chapter oh, one and verse seventeen says, "For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the preaching of the cross." Is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the time of God. The Apostle Paul said, This is what God has called me to do. He has called me and sent me to preach the gospel. I want to preach and teach to you for a little while tonight about just that thing. The gospel. And let's lift up our hands and our voices. Praise the Lord together. God, we love you. Lord, you are worthy of all the praises of all the earth and all creation. Oh Lord, we lift up the name of Jesus above everything. Thank you. God, we're the privileges that we have tonight. That's the precious bread of life again. We ask it all, Lord, that it can be done in your will in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is the gospel? We hear the word, we probably say the term quite a bit, but, but what is it? What is the gospel? And, you know, it's, I want to take you to the book of Matthew and to the book of Luke, Matthew chapter 27 and Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read a few verses to you that really kind of encapsulates what the gospel is all about. And then we'll kind of, this this will be our, our dive board into the lesson tonight. So Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62 says, Now the next day, the following the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together with Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, they're talking about Jesus, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Amen. Go with me to the book of Luke, chapter 24. It's interesting they included that, that language in the 
last error shall be worse than the first, but the lie that they told. Big souls has it condemned. Those that would not believe. Huh? Luke chapter 24 and verse 36, we will find that it didn't do a whole lot of good for Pilate to set a guard. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. This was after he after he was put in the tomb and the guard had been set. He appeared among his disciples. Verse 37 says that they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen the Spirit. They said, He said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. I learned that a couple weeks ago. The spirit does not have flesh and bones. But the man standing in front of them did. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wonder, he said unto them, Have you here any meat? They gave him a piece of royal fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So now do you know what the gospel is? Now, if you don't know, maybe you're one of those that used to have a Carlton Pearson CD, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And some of you were living it for a few years. That's a CD. The shower CD at your house. And maybe if you listen to that CD, there was a line in there where one of the men that were about to sing the song they were going to sing said that the gospel is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you ever go to Bible college or, or you begin Bible, Bible Theology 101 and you get asked the question, what is the gospel, then that's probably the right answer. That's the one that you need to give. It's the, it's the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a wrong answer. But, but what does it really mean? What truly is the message of the gospel? Because of it was everything that Paul was sent to do. It was everything that he gave his life for. From the moment that God struck him down with blindness on the road to Damascus and began to speak to him and began to change the course of his life, Paul spent the rest of his days preaching the gospel. He said, and he wasn't saying that those first verses that I read to you, that, that you shouldn't be baptized. That's not true at all. That's part of the gospel. I just read to you the words of Jesus when he said so. But he was talking about the fact that there were, there, there were people arguing over who they belonged to based on who baptized them. You know, I, I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by Paul. Or I was baptized by somebody else. And he said, that's not what this is all about. What this is all about is the gospel. That's why we have a church today. That's why you call yourself apostolic, Pentecostal, holy roller, whatever term you choose to use this week. The only reason you have that identity tonight is because of the gospel. We better want to know what it is. We want to know what the gospel is. Why was it so significant? Why is the gospel so significant? The first section in your book, in your lesson tonight, is about the inevitability of death and its curse. Human beings are mortal. This is the paragraph in that first, first section. Human beings are mortal. We must face death. However much we may try to domesticate or normalize or anticipate it, when death comes close to us and the ones we love we see the truth. Here's the truth. It's not supposed to be there. 
Was it the brightness? Not supposed to be there. Death is the result of sin interrupting the original plan for paradise that God created. Now, it's interesting that this lesson falls now when it does. Now, I've already kind of opened up this lesson to a couple of folks along the way over the past couple of weeks because we've been walking through death. We've been walking through the loss of those that, that mean a great deal to us. And although we know that they have the hope of the, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that, that in the rapture they're going to be calling together and in a moment of a twinkling of an eye, just like us, and that we're going to be together again one day for the Lord. We know that when they die in faith, we know they're going to be risen right. They're going to rise up for one day to be with the Lord for the rest of eternity. We know all of that. But that does not change the fact that it is an unwelcome gift in our life. Romans 5 and 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. Why did death enter the world? Because of sin. It wasn't there before sin was there. There was no death. Who is the man that brought sin and death into the world? Adam. He was the representative of all of us, and he sinned. So that is why death is inevitable to all of us. Because Adam represented humanity. He was the first one. He was the king. He was the chief. He was the father of us all. Regardless of where you might trace your family tree back to, everybody goes back to Adam. Everybody goes back to Noah, too. You don't really understand that. We're going to do some Bible study. But we all go back to Adam. That's where it came from. That's where we come from. And so when he sinned, when he chose to do wrong, to disobey the will and the commandment of God, he took upon himself, and thereby, because we all come from him, we all take on sin. And the penalty for sin is death. God had spoken to Adam and told him, do not eat of that tree. Because in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And the moment that that fruit entered into his mouth, from that day forward, the penalty of death came upon all men. Now, it, it, it did its work pretty quick. If you look at Scripture, when he began to, to marvel sometimes in the book of Genesis, at the life expectancy of some of the patriarchs at home, it's just downright amazing. You think you feel old now because you're in your 60s. I wonder what they felt like in their 600s. Now, I know, I know, I, I would imagine they probably don't feel, they probably did not feel as people then as what we do now when we get up to the upper part of our life. But nonetheless, it, it's, it's, it just blows our mind. I mean, we see people in, in this world today, they make it to 90 or 100, and we see them going somewhere, and we're like, Lord, have mercy. That's where the, the phrase, they've got one foot in the grave, come from. Because they're, they're just going to fall over at any moment. They're weak, they're, they're worn down, and, and then they live a long life, and, and they're just barely holding on. And yet they live for hundreds of years. But in just a little while, you saw that life expectancy start dropping dramatically. Now, some have speculated that it's because of of the flood, and that, that the, the atmosphere of the world was different before God washed the whole world with the flood, and so the conditions allowed man to live that long, and, and after the flood, the conditions changed, you know, humidity came from the south, that sort of thing, and we all started to die faster. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know whether that's true or not, and even as anybody else other than God, but we do see that, that sin came through Adam, and then even if it did happen after the flood, you know, the reason the flood happened was because of sin too. And so, nonetheless, sin makes us not live a very long time. So we go from living for hundreds of years to we're doing really, 
life if we make it to 100. There, there's only three people in all of human history recorded as having escaped death. And that's Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus Christ. There's nobody else ever recorded in history. I know there were some that were raised up from the dead, but the day came they went back. We don't get to escape that appointment unless we're living when the Lord raptures the church. And yet, look at how hard we fight to escape it. Look at how hard we fight to escape it. Now, I know that you know, I know we don't live hundreds of years anymore, but, but medical advances have allowed people to live longer than they once did. You know, I've read some things before about the, the consequences of, of the advancement of medicine as it relates to, to war wounds and, and war casualties. That there was a day when people had grievous wounds from battle, they, they never came home. They just died. And, and they never saw their family again. But now they're coming home, and they're, but they're coming home in a condition that, that people aren't accustomed to seeing and even being in because medicines and machines and all those things can keep them alive despite the fact that they're, they're damaged in ways that people just normally don't live after having convinced in that matter. But even with all of that, even with all the advancements that we have and the things that, that certainly prolong life a lot of times with when, when normal circumstances were taken out of us, it still can't be escaped. It cannot be escaped. If the Lord carries His coming long enough, every single one of us will draw our last breath here in this If we have the solace and the understanding of knowing that there are greater things to come, but it still hurts, we still suffer. No matter how much we plan for it, no matter how much we anticipate it, the pain is still there. We may know that we might see them in heaven, but we can't see them now. I remember Sister Paul were talking years ago about the fact that she just did not know how she would survive after the Palmer passed. She did not know how she would make it another day without him, and she made it 25 years. I guarantee you, when she went to his funeral, she never had any idea she's going to be in this world 25 more years. She probably figured the Lord's coming, or I'm going to the Lord, one or the other, long before that. She never imagined that. But it is a very real part of our life. But it wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't God's intention for man to die. We only die because of sin. You can get mad at Adam all you want. You, you can say you're going to seek him out when you get to heaven and, and give him a piece of your mind. I'm sure you won't when you get to heaven, but you might think that way down here. But it's not all Adam's fault. I know Adam started it all. But the fact of the matter is, every generation of mankind has always rejected God's Psalms 14 and 1 says, The fool had said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not Bottom line is, no matter how much good we might try to do, how much badness we might try to constrain out of ourselves, whether we are on average good or on average bad, we are still going to die. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, not just in our infancy and in our innocence when we didn't know any better, when we did get old enough to know better, when we did get an understanding enough to know that the Word of God says, Thou shalt not do this. Somewhere along the line in your life, you chose your way and not God's. And so therefore, we all are owed death. Which leads us to the next point. All of us desperately need a Savior. We have a problem that humanity cannot solve. We have a promise given to us. It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. We have a problem that no man alone 
and there was none. There was nobody. The best and the brightest. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and, and David, and Solomon, all of them failed God, just like you and I. But it drives home into our heart and into our understanding that you and I desperately need a Savior. The paragraph in your book, we human beings are all equally in need of a Savior. In history and experience teach there are no exceptions to this need. All of us sin and seek our selfish interests, pushing God away, though we need Him desperately. Romans 3 and 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's one of the, the tenets of our faith that we have to believe that we are without hope, without God. If you believe there is a way to, to, to salvation, if you believe there is a way to escape death other than God, then you're not a Christian. It's part of the Christian faith. I've heard it said, I forget the man who made the statement, but he said it's, it's the only it's the only club in the world except perhaps the, the hell's angels that you got to believe you're bad before you can get in. If you don't believe you're lost, there's no point going to church. You can sit there all day long and listen to some inspirational speeches, and your life never be changed. You got to get to the place that you realize I need a savior. I need something that there's no human being in this world that can do for me. Mama can't do it. Daddy can't do it. Grandma and Grandpa can't do it. I need God. I need somebody to save me. There are faiths in this world. There are other religions in this world. And certainly humanism fits the bill as well. That teach that, that humans are inherently good and not inherently evil. And yet our Bible tells us that We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The idea that we are inherently good is a lie. Uh, I heard one preacher make the statement. He, 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 didn't, he wasn't talking about scolding this person in general, but they stood up and made the statement in church. I'm so glad God saw enough good in me to do such and such in my life. And, and he had to kind of get corrected and say, God never saw any good in me. God never saw any good in me. There was good in God, but not in me. It is a lie to believe that we are inherently good. Now, we didn't start out that way. Adam and Eve were inherently good because there was no sin in them. They were created in the image of God. He breathed the breath of life in Adam, and then he became a living soul. Then Eve came from him. They came directly from the hand and from the breath of God. They were inherently and completely good until they chose to sin. So there's still some good things about us. And what am I talking about? I thought you just said that there's no good in us. There are aspects of our personality, of our ways of thinking, our, 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 means, our ways of being that are kind of almost like residue from the fact that we were created in the image of God. He, he, we still are His creation. We've just been corrupted by sin to the tune of about 6,000 years. So that, that's why it only takes a few days, the Bible says, for the little baby to get into trouble. The rice is ready. You say, just go, just go to sleep and be quiet. And they, they won't. I know we're not talking about it that age. You just learn to be a toddler. They may not understand theology, they may not understand history and philosophy and all that stuff, but they know what no means, and they just chose to keep on doing it. It's true. There's still some positive things that come out of people at times, but all that it takes is the right circumstances, and anyone will see it. If that weren't true, the Bible would have to have the scripture in there that talks about the fact that the Lord would not put things upon us more so that we could bear God knows our nature. And there are times that, that God shields us from things that He knows we can't handle. And there was a time a number of years ago, somebody that I knew that just made, made some big mistakes in their life, just done some very foolish things, and, and you know, you get stupid every once in a while. And, 
I just kind of was sitting down and just thinking, you know, how can they be that dumb? How can they make that mistake? They, they had to foresee the consequences. Why would they do that? And just about every time I'm stupid, God talks to me. You want God to talk to you more be stupid? But the Lord spoke to me and said, if I had not kept you from things, you'd be right where they are right now. You want to talk about something that will sober you and set you up? Because there's two things going on there. One, I remind you of the fact that you're no bigger, better, smarter, wiser than anybody else. And the only reason you're not in, in the bottom of that barrel that they're in right now is because God saw fit to have mercy and to keep you from it. Teaches you that. It also teaches us that all he has to do is pull that hand back. Read about the story of David and Bathsheba. Now it, it, it's been it's been put this way, presented this way, that God just left David to what was in his heart. Know that the sweet psalmist of Israel, the greatest king that Israel's ever had, and mighty warrior in battle, the one whose, whose heart is after God and after doom, destroyed an awful lot of things and never got put back together. Given the right circumstances, all of us will sin. The question was asked of a man in Abraham Heschel um, who survived the Holocaust and and he, he was interviewed a number of times because of that. Someone, a reporter asked him the question one day, where was God in all of this? Where was God while your people were being incinerated in ovens by the thousands? Here's his answer. He said, the question is not, where was God during all of this? The real question is, where was man? It's man that chooses to do evil. God, God chooses on his own for reasons that most of the time he chooses not to share with you and I as to, to whom he'll have mercy on or who he won't. But that's the other sobering thing about God talking to you like that is you, you will understand why God had mercy on you and not the other guy. You can't come up with some logical human reason as to why you're not in the place that they're in and they're not still in the place that you're in. Why is that? I don't know. God said, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. But all of us had a choice to obey God or not, and all of us failed the test. And so we are all left with a problem that is unfixable man. We have a need that man cannot provide. Think about the Old Testament system of sacrifice. It was, it was something that had to be done all the time. There were some sacrifices that had to be done on a regular basis, and then there was the, the truly, the, the, the over mostly important sacrifice that had to be made once a year. And that sacrifice had to be made to its home for the sin of all the people, and it would push those sins back for another year. That was the system. That's how it worked. Without them offering that sacrifice, without that sacrifice being accepted by God, they were dead in their sins. The only way they had hope is to continue that sacrifice all the time. Now imagine that that is you, that is your family, and everything you've got, all the hope that you have, hinges on this sacrificial system. Then some prophet starts writing down, I don't want your sacrifices stick in my nose. I don't want to have anything to do with any of them. That, that's the only plan you have. That's the only hope you have. The only chance that you had of ever making heaven and ever escaping hell was that that lamb, that that, that, that cow that was slain would be put there on that altar and it would be accepted by God. And now God is speaking to a prophet saying, I don't want it anymore. Don't bring it, don't burn it, don't offer it, because it means nothing to me. 
that were added up, even if God continued to accept those sacrifices, those sacrifices were, were offered for unintentional and foolish and frivolous sins. The Bible teaches that for intentional sins, there weren't sacrifices. I messed up, I made a mistake, I did something in the heat of the moment, I, I failed to do something that I should have done, I omitted to do something that should have taken place, I'll go and offer this offering and make everything right, but if you knew full well what you did, and you knew full well what the law said about it, and you just up and chose, I'm going to go and do it anyway, then there was no sacrifice going to get you out of that penalty. You couldn't show up with 15 pure, spotless lambs and offer them on the altar and go scot-free. If you knew that murder was a sin and you took your brother's life, your life would be taken. You died without mercy. That was the system. So man had no recourse for his soul. No recourse for his soul. Perhaps that's why there's such a sense of expectancy all throughout Scripture. Perhaps that's why the prophets spoke the way they did and the psalmists wrote the way they did. Because the closer you examine that system and the more you look at the altar and the more you look at the labor and the more you look at this house of God and you begin to realize there's no way this is enough. There's no way that the life of an innocent lamb is ever going to take away the sins of a man. That is in fact what was discovered. That the blood of bulls and goats could never remit the sins of a man. So what possibly That enters in God's plan. That enters in section 3 is the audacity of God's plan. Nothing about what Jesus did makes sense to us. The scripture that I opened with tonight says that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It makes no sense whatsoever. It doesn't line up with any human feeling or emotion at all. And look at what God did. No logical reason drove Jesus to the cross. Yet in the face of our sin, he showed us grace and submitted to death, destroying the curse and the penalty of sin. The crucifixion showed the depravity in our human nature, and yet Jesus' sacrifice showed the grace of God. Let me back to the book of Romans, chapter 5. This is where we, we learn in that book that it was Adam's sin, the sin of one man, that brought death home to all of us. Romans 5 and 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, where sin abounded, grace did much more of that. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so by grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What abounded more than our sin. It was the grace of God. Why can we have? How can we have eternal life? How can there be anything beyond the grave? It's because of the righteousness of Jesus. 
did Jesus do? Everywhere that he went, he primarily he, he did two things. He preached and he healed. What is it that you and I are always consumed about? We're consumed about our flesh, our bodies, the food that we eat, the things that we have in this world, our possessions, the things that bring us pleasure, our health. Well, if you don't believe me tonight, you just let yourself get by. Call me, tell me how spiritual you are. I'm not saying you're not spiritual when you get a migraine, but that's not what you're thinking about. You're not thinking about going to the aisles of church. You're thinking about, dear God, touch me. I need healing. I need this to be released from me. I need to be free from this pain and from this suffering. We, we are always consumed about the things that matter to the body. And everywhere that Jesus went, he was moving on those things that pertain to our body. Everywhere he went, he healed. He opened blinded eyes. He raised the dead. He made the lambs walk again. Even when they got hungry, he didn't make them fast. He gave them the things that pertain to their body. He provided for their temporal needs. But in John chapter 6 and 26, after he'd done a little bit of this, after he performed some miracles and he multiplied some loaves and fishes and he does all these great things and the crowds began to follow him. He says in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Very, very, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You know what this sounds like? This sounds like when you have a church picnic. You invite backsliders to come back to church 2,800 times and they never come to church. But put some steaks on the grill. Look, Tim's laughing at this. Where all the line he showed up at a picnic. He was living right. You just, you know, you, you, you have some food. You, you start providing some things. You know, it's not hard to, to, to get a crowd of people if you hand out free stuff. Don't keep laughing. But it's true. Look, I don't know, this is the only way you get the stimulus check is to show up at the courthouse. <laughs> All 30,000 number of county residents will be packed into the courthouse from there. All you got to do to get a crowd is to give out the stuff that people want in their flesh. He said, you, you're not seeking me because you saw the miracles. You're seeking me because I fed you dinner. But then he says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. He was consistently pointing out that the biggest need that we had was not food in our belly, it was not even healing for our bodies, it was not even being raised up from the dead. The biggest need that we had was for a Savior. It was for somebody to come along and pay the price for our souls so that when this life comes to an end, we would have hope. The greatest thing he came to do was not to cause us to escape physical death, but it was to escape spiritual death. See, isn't it interesting that the Lord spoke to Adam and said, in the day that you eat thereof, you'll surely die. The day that you eat thereof, you'll surely die. And yet we can all read our Bibles and see that he ate the fruit and lived a few hundred years after that. Uh, I've heard it said before that, that the day of the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is to a day, and he lived just a few years shy of a thousand years, and so it was that day. I would have to ask the Lord if that's true or not. But I do know that the Bible says they were cast out of the garden. They were cast out of the place where God's presence was, where he would come down on the cool of the day and have fellowship with them. In the day that they ate thereof, they were separated from God. Because you see, that's the thing that we really need fixing. Now, we want to live here, down in this world. We want to stay alive because God put 
multiplies inside of us. And if this world weren't filled with sin, we want to stay in it. The only reason we get homesick for heaven is because we feel like strangers and pilgrims and martyrs down here in this world. But the thing that Jesus came to solve was not to keep us from dying out of this world, but to get us back in a right relationship with Him. Because these bodies, no matter whether they live 70 years or 700 years or 7,000 years, these bodies contain a living soul breathed by the very breath of God that is eternal and cannot die. It can only go to sleep, as Brother Shanks was talking about. The Lord said, we realize that there's an eternal destination for what lives inside of us. And sin will cause us to get off the old road exit ramp. And God came to this world to be a Savior. And here's what's so crazy about it. Here's what doesn't make sense about the cross, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is he didn't do it in a way that made any sense to how do men solve problems? They solve them by might and by power and by wealth and by human wisdom. Countries don't have enough money and resources. Let's take over those. We can't find a solution to our problem. We'll just get somebody smarter than us to, to technologically advance so we can do that. That's the world we're living in today. We think that there's more knowledge in humanity today in multiples, you know, to, to, to great degrees of math that I can't even explain, the amount more of knowledge and information that exists today than existed 5,000 years ago in the mind of man. And yet we are no closer to God. Not closer to God. And Jesus came and his plan flew in the face of everything that man thought of them. Seemingly everything about the kingdom of God is the opposite of the kingdom of the men. The world says if you want to be rich, you got to hold on to your money. Hey, Ramsey. I'm not inside. The Bible says if you want to be rich, the world says if you want to be happy, you've got to put yourself first. You've got to do the things that make you happy first. The Word of God says to put everybody else first and you last. The world says that the most important person in the room is the one that is getting served the most. Go to Buckingham Palace, they're not there for you. They might let you in. If you're important enough, you may even sit at the table, but they're not concerned with you. Their biggest concern is the queen. Did y'all know that it's customary when the queen has a dinner that when the queen stops eating, you're done too. When the queen puts down the fork and the spoon, they come take the food away, ain't nobody else eating because the queen is done eating. She's the most important person in the room because all the servants belong to her. The Bible says that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one on the floor washing our filthy feet. Nothing about God's kingdom makes any sense to men. But here's the biggest contradiction of all. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of it messed both up, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles just thought it was outright foolishness. The Jews at least thought about it, but they couldn't figure it out. It was a stumbling block. It made no sense. Even his disciples kept walking around. When are you going to restore the kingdom? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Oh, by the way, when you do it, can I sit on your right hand? Can my brother sit on your left? Can we just command fire to come down from heaven? Can we just start taking over now? They had 
Jesus was up to. And then as they stood there, there were a few of them at the foot of the cross, the others off from a distance, and they stared at their lifeless leader. They were all wondering what in the world has just happened. We thought he was the one. We thought he was the Savior. We thought he was the one that was going to restore the kingdom. Oh, he was. He just did it in a way that made no sense to mankind at all. Paul was one of those men. It made no sense to him. Only a fool would follow that, that ragtag group of men. Only a fool would follow that man who said he was a Savior and then that he's dead in his tomb. But when he met him one day on the road to Damascus, when he knew who Jesus was, he said to the rest of the world, this message is foolishness. But if you'll believe it, it is the power of God unto salvation. The curse of death. The curse of being separated from God. The curse of having our days numbered and our breaths measured could only be reversed. It could only be removed. By dying. And kind of spent through 4,000 years trying to keep living. The only way for God's plan to come to pass is by death. Verse 25 says, because the foolishness of God is wise. The weakness of God is stronger. Or you see your calling, brethren. How not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory. Brings us to the fourth and final point. The remedy of the cross. Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection were God's way of dealing with human sinfulness and curse of death. His death initiated the end of the reign of death and gave hope to all people for all time. First Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all in the last of that shall be destroyed in the stream of Until Jesus comes, all of us have an appointment. If the Lord delays his coming another hundred years, there's not a living one of us today in all likelihood that will live that long to see that day a hundred years from now. We will die and be buried like every generation before us. Until Jesus comes, death still reigns. The thing that caused death to come to all of humanity was disobedience to God. Choosing the will of the flesh. But victory came. By complete obedience. By submission to the will of God and not listening to the will of the flesh. You heard these verses twice in the past few weeks. But I'll read them again in verse 51 of that chapter. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
Some are already sleeping. The Lord tarries even a little while. There will likely be more that will be sleeping. But the day is going to come when we're not always sleeping. Leave us on here, so that way you can do Some people won't taste my death. You want to go home? We shall all smell it. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye of the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must throw incorruption, this mortal must throw immortality. So when, then and only then, this corruptible shall throw incorruption, this mortal shall throw immortality. Death shall be brought to pass the same that is written. Death is swallowed up in this water. Oh, death? Where's thy sleep? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The sting of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory for our Lord Jesus Christ. The day is soon coming when death will never again have power over you. The day is soon coming when the final enemies will be defeated all the cause of the price that Jesus paid. All the cause of the cross of Calvary. The scripture says if we're buried with him, we're going to be raised up just like him. The gospel is the message that there is hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond this life that if we would submit ourselves to the plan of God, this world will have no power over us. If we do it God's way, if we go against everything that man thinks, what the Word of God says. The Bible says the patriarchs of old loved not their lives unto death because they knew something greater was coming. Would you stand to your feet all across this place? If you want to come to the altar and pray and the altars are open. If you want to stand where you, you are and lift your hands yeah. and begin to thank God for His promises and that's the Lord too. Oh, let's give God glory in His house tonight. Yeah, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ.